The following audio is from Christian Heritage Church. More information about Christian Heritage Church is available at chctoday.com. Just really kept coming back to this idea here in Mark chapter 5. It's something that really, especially probably over the past two or three years, it's a, a theme that God has really driven into my heart. Um, for Angie and I, in terms of um, our role as husband and wife, in terms of our role as parents to our three children, we have a 10-year-old boy, a 7-year-old boy, and a 6-year-old girl. In terms of our place um, of service in Tulsa at Christian Chapel, this idea of just go home is something that God has taught us again and again and again. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to look at Mark, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And so we're, where we're picking up the story is that the previous night, Jesus and the disciples, they've been out on the sea. There's been a big storm. Jesus has calmed the storm, and now they are pulling up on shore. It's in the region of the Gerasenes. And as soon as they pull up and they get out of the boat, it says a man who is tormented by an evil spirit comes running towards them. And uh, this man, he had a, a reputation that the town had tried to control him. They couldn't. He was demon-possessed. He was uh, just completely wild and out of control. So they tried to chain him up, and he would break free of the chains. chains. And it says that he just kind of roamed through the cemetery and the tombs and would scream and cut himself. He was just in- incredibly disturbed. And so when Jesus shows up, there's something in this man. These evil spirits, it, it, somehow he's able to overcome them enough to go before Jesus. And Jesus sees him while he's coming, and in, in just a moment, he sets him free. And this man is, is calm, his mind is at peace, his soul is at rest. He's a completely different person. And the people of the surrounding town are so terrified by what has happened. In some way, they seem more terrified of this man in sound mind than they were when he was possessed, that they asked Jesus to leave. And so Jesus and his disciples, they get back in the boats to leave. And, and there are a lot of things that happen in this story that I think demonstrate Jesus' power. There are a lot of uh, things that we can learn about our relationship with the Lord and our responsibilities to those who are hurting in our community. But this morning I want to focus on the last part of the story, just the last three verses, verse 18 through 20. It says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So that man, went, that man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. I mean, we can understand, I think you can, it's pretty easy to put yourself in, in this man's position and understand why he would want to go home with Jesus, right? He's been tormented for years. He hasn't had a, a peaceful night's sleep in maybe forever. He's never went through a day being of sound mind. All he knows in life is torment and anguish and pain. He's exposed to the elements. He's rejected by his community. He's the the guy that dads warn their little boys, hey, if you don't straighten up, you might become that. He's the the man that, that mothers tell their daughters, no matter what you do, don't ever go out near him. And Jesus shows up, and with just a very simple command, everything is made right in his life. And so why wouldn't he want to go with Jesus? Why wouldn't he want to go in the boat? He'll do anything. He'll go anywhere. And Jesus' response to him is go home. And it almost seems cruel. I mean, for for some of us, if Jesus told us go home, we could think, okay, because for us, like for me, if, if you told me go home, home is a nice place. Home is a place I love. Home is a place where people love me. But for this man, home is where they had chained him up like a wild animal. Home is where they had driven him out of town. 
Home is where he was mocked and ridiculed. Home was the scene of his most horrible memories. And Jesus sets him free and he wants a fresh start. But Jesus tells him, go home. And it just seems cruel. It seems unlike what the way Jesus treats us. And yet, I think when we start to look at this story and we start to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through it? I think what we discover is that the message God often gives to most of us is go home. When we've experienced Him in powerful and personal ways, when He has set us free, when He's calmed the storms, when He's delivered us, then He comes to us and He says, now go home. And home is where He sends many of us. Now home might not be the place of your birth. You know, for me, I was born in Springfield, Missouri, while my dad was in Bible college. I lived in Ark City, a little town in in Kansas, along the Kansas-Oklahoma border, and lots of great memories there. We moved to Topeka, when I was uh, 11, and that's where I met my wife and finished high school. And then I actually went back to Springfield, went to the same school my dad had went to, went to seminary. And so I've, I've had a lot of different homes over my life. But if you were to ask me now, where is home? To me and Angie and our three kids, home is Tulsa, Oklahoma. Home is where we live. It's not just the place that, that God has put us, but it's the place that God has planted us. Tulsa is home for us because it's where, it's where all of life is. It's where my kids were born. It's where they're raised. It's the only school they've ever known. It's the only church they've ever known. It's, it's where we belong. This is where we are. And for many of you, maybe you feel like me of like, well, I don't, you know, I've lived in a lot of different places, so I don't know which one I signify as home. But you know in your heart, home is the place where God plants you might not always be the easiest. It might not always be the ideal. Like for me, I would, if Tulsa just had mountains, it would be the perfect place in the world. But it, it doesn't. And my wife, if Tulsa had a beach, she would never, like we'd never have to go on vacation anymore. But it doesn't. But it's home. It's where God has called us. It's where God has planted us. And, and I think there's something very powerful about people who experience Christ and then go home. See, as our society becomes more and more transient, as, as people just move from place to place, from city to city, from job to job, the people who go home, the long-term pillars and offices and neighbors and churches, they stand out more and more. And even when God calls you to other places, when He calls you to leave what you've known behind and go somewhere else, He's often calling you to go there and to make that home to plant yourself, to invest yourself. But there's something inside, not all of us, but something inside many of us that rejects this idea. We have a problem with the idea of home. And, and if we're honest, the reason we have a problem is home is where they know me. Right? Like, it, it, even in Tulsa, so my wife and I, we've lived there for 10 years now. So I have lived there long enough that I have a lot of friends who know me really well. And we have a lot of shared experiences. And so my friends that I know well, my friends that I've worked with, they have seen the good and the bad at me, right? Like somebody who comes to church on a Sunday morning, they, I can make them think I pretty much have it together. Uh, but if you hang out with me very long, you learn I don't really have it together. And if you hang out with my kids very long, you will really learn I don't have it together, both from the things they do and, and mostly from the stories they will tell about me. Uh, I mean, just so for example, my uh, Angie and I, we went, I have a cousin who lives outside of Tulsa and we went to their house uh, about a year ago for a graduation party and we had some other things to do. And in the car on the way there, Angie and I had a a discussion 
about uh, the best order that we should go about our day. And she thought one way and she was wrong and I was letting her know. And so we had this discussion in front of our kids and we get to my cousin's house and, you know, we've been married long enough. It's like, all right, put that behind us, put our game face on. Let's go have fun with the family. And we get out of the car. And my, my cousin's wife walks out and she's so happy and she's hugging us. And she's saying, it's so good to see you guys. And she says hi to Connor, our oldest. And then she gets to Corbin and Cor- the first words out of his mouth are, my mom and dad were fighting in the car on the way here. <laughs> And she, thankfully, was very gracious. It was like, honey, that's okay. That's what, that's what happens sometimes. You know, she handled it well. But here's the thing. When people tell you to go home, it means you're going home to people who know you. And as well as my friends know me, like my, my brother and sisters, uh, if you ask them, they could tell you stories about me that, that I have forgotten myself even. But when they tell us to go home, it's always, there, there's risk involved. Because going home means you're going home to where people know you. They know your past. They know who you used to be. They know your struggles. They know all the ways you don't get it right. And so sometimes we we don't want to go home because we want to be set free with Jesus. And now we want to go start this whole new story where no one else knows all the mess that we used to be. But Jesus says go home. And sometimes when we go home, we don't want to go because that's where our relatives are. And, And let's be honest. Some of our relatives are weird, right? Like if you would go with my dad out to western Oklahoma, he could introduce you to his cousin who had a pet dog, and the dog kept biting him. And so to teach the dog a lesson, he bit it back and took off the top corner of its ear. Like that's our family. That's in our DNA somewhere. It hasn't come up at any other point, but it's, it's there. And so when Jesus says go home, there's a lot of reasons we don't want to do it. Sometimes it's just it sounds boring, right? Like go home, really? I thought it was going to be an adventure. For this guy, he wants to go with Jesus because it's a fresh start. It's something he's never seen before. It's a peace he's never known before. And so he's telling Jesus, look, I'll go with you. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll row the boat. I'll pack the meals. I'll wash your feet. Whatever it takes, just let me go. And Jesus says, no, you go home. And go home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. Tell them what he is, he, how he set you free, how you're a different person. And it's, it can be difficult because there's so much in our, our culture, in our church culture even, that teaches us that somehow to do something significant for Christ, we have to go out there. We have to go away. We have to go and do something else to advance God's kingdom. And what we have to be really cautious of is that we don't become so concerned with what God might one day do over there that we miss out on what he's doing right here. Amen. And when he tells us to go home, it's not to go home and sit. It's to go home and pay attention to how his kingdom is coming Amen. and how his will is being accomplished. Here's, I mean, the, the whole thing, the whole point of this morning is that God calls most of us to go home. And it's not the big adventure, it's not the big story that, that they write books about and make movies about, but it's the reality of our life. And if we cannot get okay with the idea of going home, then we're going to miss out on being the convergence of God's kingdom in our world. But before we get to that point, before we get to what's it mean to go home and why does God call us to get home, I want to talk to you, think about two reasons that we have a problem with home. The first one is the stories we tell. Now, I, as a, as a pastor, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. 
And uh, like my dad said, I, I grew up in a pastor's home. And so when you grow up in a pastor's home, you grow up around stories. And my grandpa is a, a farmer out in western Oklahoma. And so he told us stories all the time. And one of the things that we learned about stories were stories are good when they're exciting and when they're different, right? And so same thing in your life. Like my grandpa, if he came to, when we're going to bed on his farm at night as a kid, and he wants to tell us a story about how he just went up and down a field cutting row after row of wheat, that doesn't cut it. We want to hear the stories about coyotes and ghosts and all this other kind of stuff that he would make up and tell us. But in church, it's the same thing. And I, as a pastor, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. This is something God's really been dealing with me about. That my temptation is always to tell the outrageous, the, the, just the super, the, the wonderful stories, and to ignore the ordinary and the mundane stories. So it's easy for me to tell stories in my church about my friend Tim, who lives in the Himalayas in India, and he regularly goes on treks for a week to tell people about Jesus. It's not as easy for me to tell stories about the math teacher who serves in North Tulsa and teaches math to underprivileged fifth graders. It's easy for me to tell stories about uh, my friends who have sold everything they own. They moved to the other side of the world to run an orphanage for kids in, in desperate poverty. It's not as easy, it's not as attractive to tell the story about the, the single mom that goes to our church who adopted three kids out of foster care because that's what God called her to do. It's easy for me to tell stories about the teenager who was just living this wild, out-of-control life and was, was confronted by the power of God and surrendered their life to Him. People love that story. It's, it's not as easy, it's not as fun to tell the story of the 15-year-old who just loves the Lord and is trying to tell his buddy about Jesus. And then when he does tell his buddy, then his mom and dad start coming to church and then his little brothers and sisters start coming to church. And before you know it, this one just obscure, ordinary 15-year-old has helped lead six people to the Lord. But we don't even want to tell those stories. We want to tell the stories of, man, look at that guy. He was running in the opposite direction. He was doing something totally different. And then God called him back. And so something God has really been dealing with me about over the last several years is to tell all of the stories. Christianity was never meant to be a superhero movement. And any time we elevate certain members of the body far above the rest of us, we do all of us a disservice. Amen. And the reason we do a disservice is because we're, we're intentionally or unintentionally painting a picture to the church that to do something of significance for Christ, it means you have to go somewhere, you have to do something, you have to give up everything, you have to do something extravagant if you want your story to be told. So what I've been learning, what I feel like God has really been teaching me is that one of my primary jobs as a pastor is to tell the ordinary, mundane stories of our church. Because here's the thing, the ordinary, mundane stories are truly supernatural. Amen. It's supernatural when people in your church adopt children out of foster care. It's supernatural when you reach out and help a lady experiencing an unplanned pregnancy. It's supernatural when you help somebody get their budget in order. Amen. It's supernatural when you adopt a young couple and mentor them so they can have a healthy marriage. It's supernatural when you come alongside a single father and say, hey, let me help you. Let me, let me make sure those girls know how to act like girls. Amen. All of these are supernatural moments, but they're not necessarily the big extreme stories. And so one of the things we have to do to understand how God's kingdom comes to our home is we have to become better about the stories we tell. 
And what that means is for you and I, no matter how ordinary, no matter how mundane our story is, we can tell it. The other problem I think we face with home is, is not just the stories we tell, but it's the stories we, we post. And now I don't, I don't know where our um, generational divide is and who I'm hitting here, uh, but what I do know is I've got some grandmas and grandpas at my church that are on Facebook more than I am. And so uh, if that's not you, that's okay. You're exempt from this portion of the message, and you can just shake your finger at everyone else. But... Uh, you know, there used to be a day, and, and I know high school students, you probably wouldn't remember this, college students probably wouldn't either, but there used to be a day when people would go on vacation, and that was all they did. They just went on vacation. And so your friends would go on vacation, your family would go on vacation, and while they were gone, you didn't think about them, you didn't wonder what they were doing, you didn't know what they were eating. You didn't know how far they had driven or what awesome thing they had done that day. They were just, they were just gone. They just went and they did it. And then they came back. And if you had a, a really, really overachiever, like we had some, uh, there was an older family in Ark City when we lived there and they would travel a lot. One was a school teacher another one worked for the railroad. And every time they would come back from the trip, they would put together like the legit old school slideshow. You're not, not a PowerPoint slideshow. Like a real, do you remember the real slideshow? Like the circle slide, right? And so we'd go over and we'd sit down at their house and, and my, my, uh, my dad would give us a speech before we went in of like, you're going to sit there quietly. You're going to act like you like this. You're going to be polite. And so we would sit down and they'd be like, here we are at the airport. Here we are arriving. Here we are getting off the plane. And I'm just like, here I am about to die. Can we get this over with? But that, but that was the rare exception. Like most of the people we knew, they went on vacation, they came home and they said, hey, we had fun. We're like, that's great. But think of how people go on vacation now, right? And, and some of you, you are worse than other people at this. Uh, it, the thing I've noticed is if you're really bad, you don't even notice it. So that's fine. You're not even going to get offended this morning, but... I mean, some people, they go on vacation now, and it, it's like a, a running diary of their vacation, right? It starts the night before, packing for vacation. Oh, cute swimsuit, going to the beach. Here we are in the car. Here's a selfie at the airport. Here's my $7 Starbucks. Oh, here's a picture of my flight being delayed. Here we are arriving. Here we are on the beach. Here we are doing that. Here we are doing that. And the rest of us, we're at home in our normal, boring lives, sitting at our desk, watching all this awesomeness that our friends are going through. And it looks amazing, and it looks wonderful. And, and I don't know how it here, is here in Tallahassee, but in Tulsa, people, if they could all agree to just go on vacation during the same two weeks in June, I'd be fine with it. But they don't. They go on vacation all the time. And several people are going on multiple vacations. And so what happens is I'm sitting in Tulsa when it's 100 degrees and the heat index is 115. And I'm questioning why God ever called me there in the first place. And I see my friends and they're posting these beautiful Rocky Mountain vacations. Or some of them are at Florida. Some of them are at Disney. But those never make me jealous. I just laugh at them. You know, and just all of these wonderful and amazing things. And they're like, look at this steak and lobster I had for dinner and I'm eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you just sit there and you think home is terrible. Home is boring. Out there is exciting. Out there is where you can go and find a drink that matches your toenails and take a picture of it. 
Which I don't know why people do. Like, if you take pictures of your feet, why do you do that? <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. You can stop, but that, that doesn't really have anything to do with what we're talking about. But it's just one of those things. You know, it, it, you, the more and more, and for the record, I'm for social media. I love it. I'm part of it. I participate in it. But like everything that we consume on a regular basis, it does something to us. And we have to be aware of what it does to us and how it shapes the way we view ourselves and how it shapes the way we view our world. You see, it, social media, there's different, it's interesting to read different articles and studies that are being done about how it literally is rewiring our brain for the way we experience pleasure in the moment. Because it, it makes it to where we are no longer fully present in that moment, but we're always thinking in every moment of every day, how do I present this for the rest of the world to consume? How do I make my great moment look even greater so that all those people out there will think my life is really awesome? And all of that filters into our understanding and our participation in the kingdom. And it can make it very difficult for us to live in the present moment. We can become so consumed with looking back on what we've done or looking at what others are currently doing or, or dreaming about what God might one day do in the future that we neglect to be fully present in what he's doing right here and right now. And if we're constantly consuming social media, if the stories we tell, the stories we identify with are based off of that, then what we're really doing is we're constructing a false reality where we're, we're comparing our everyday to everyone else's highlight of the year. Like all my friends don't go on vacation all the time. But if I look at social media, that's what it seems like during this season. Like nobody has a job. They're just professional travelers. But they're not. And so what I have to remind myself of is that while I'm sitting in Tulsa and I'm in my office and I'm working or I'm at home and I'm mowing the lawn, that this is all part of what God has called me to do. This is part of being home. It's kind of thinking, like I said, it eventually bleeds over into our understanding and our experience of God's kingdom. And, and we eventually start to think that doing something for God has to be Instagram worthy. It has to be something that other people would like, that other people would enjoy, and the idea of going home seems the opposite of that. See, there are times when God's kingdom comes in amazing and powerful ways. I could tell you lots of stories this morning about seeing God's undeniable supernatural hand at work in my life and in our church, and, and those are great and they're wonderful and we celebrate them when they happen, but the majority of my experience of God's kingdom has been just in the ordinary and the mundane moments of life. I learn more about following Christ just in a day with my kids than on a hundred missions trips. And until we get okay with that, we're never going to obey his command to go home. God's kingdom is revealed in the steady and the ordinary. And that's what he's telling this man. See, God's kingdom doesn't converge in a place. He's not restricted to temples or churches or mountains or beaches or spectacular and supernatural moments, but God's kingdom converges with our world in our lives. You are the place where God's kingdom comes and his will is accomplished in the world. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're not just praying that in a generic sense God's kingdom will come somewhere out there and one day you'll benefit from it. But you're praying that his kingdom will come and his will will be accomplished as he delivers you from evil. 
as He leads you away from temptation, as He provides for all of your needs, that in your life His kingdom will come, and as it does, He will be made famous in your life and in your world. Amen. In Mark 5, Jesus heals the demon-possessed man, and, and the villagers immediately ask Jesus to leave. I mean, it's, it's one of the most interesting passages of Scripture. They are, they are legitimately terrified of Jesus. He comes, he sends the, the demons into the pigs. The pigs all rush off into, the, into the, the lake and they drown. And the people see all of this that has happened. And they, they don't know what's going on, but they decide immediately, we don't want any more of this, so please get out of here. They're upset by his arrival. Their whole world is thrown off center by his demonstration of power. And, and so because they don't know what to do with Jesus, they want to just forget that he's ever come. And Jesus, in, in one way, he grants their wish, and he and the disciples get back in the boat. And in another way, he makes sure they will never forget him when he tells the man, go home. You see, they might not have wanted Jesus, they might not have wanted his presence, but he leaves this free man behind as a permanent reminder of his power. Jesus tells him, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And every time this man walks down the street, people see what the coming of the kingdom looks like. Every time he sits down for a meal with his family and friends, they're reminded of Jesus who came into their village and set him free. Every time he prays or sings or laughs, it stands in stark contrast to the shrieks and screams they used to hear from the tombs. Jesus granted the community's desire that he leave, but he left behind disturbing and irrefutable proof of his presence. Amen. This man could have went with Jesus, and, and he could you know, Jesus could have put him at the front of every crowd they went to and said, all right, buddy, tell your story. And it would have been awesome, and it would have been amazing. But instead, Jesus tells him, no, go home and do that. And what we have here is we have one of the first evangelists in the New Testament. That's right. His ministry predates Peter, it predates Paul. All of the other disciples, it's before Jesus sends the disciples out two by two. This man is traveling throughout this region of ten cities, and he's telling people about Jesus and what he has done. And his story has power because the people knew him. Amen. And when God tells you to go home, that's why. He knows who you used to be. He knows who you are. And still he trusts that his power working in you is enough for you to go home and tell others a story. Amen. And so you need to go home to the people you've yelled at and tell them how God has come to you. You need to go home to the people you've cheated and tell them how God has saved you. You need to go home to the people that you have wronged and abused and ignored and tell them how God has redeemed you. You need to go home to the people you've ignored. You need to go to work tomorrow and tell some of those people that, you, I mean, some of you, you've been the laziest employee that your boss has ever had, and you need to go to work and tell him how God has come and spoken to you, and you are going to dedicate yourself to be the best employee he's ever had. Amen. Some of you, you need to go to work tomorrow, and you need to apologize to your employees because you've been treating them like dirt. And God's telling you, I've called you to more than that. And the solution for you when you experience God in powerful and personal ways is not to cut off your past life and go where no one knows you. But it's to stay right there. So that the people who experienced all the mess of your sin 
can now see all the signs of your salvation. And that's why he tells us to go home. You know, it's, it can be hard for us to think of. I mean, for our teenagers, like, it's easy to experience God's presence, and it's, it's powerful and it's wonderful, like youth camps or retreats or Wednesday night services, stuff like that. But what this story teaches us is that God's power and presence is with you in a couple weeks when you're sitting in that Thursday morning English class, just as much as in your most powerful and personal experience you've ever had with Him. Amen. What it means for us as adults is that like these experiences on Sunday mornings, they are great when we can gather together, we can worship, and we can be encouraged, and we can let the Spirit speak to us through the Word. But God's power and presence is with us. His kingdom is coming, and His will is being accomplished on Wednesday morning when you're just tired, and you've got those bills you don't know how to pay, and you've got that spouse that's still getting on your nerves, you've got those kids who still won't obey, you've got a job you don't like, and in that moment, God's message is go home and Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Amen. And as we are faithful to go home and tell others what the Lord has done for us, God's kingdom comes and His will is accomplished. But we have to be willing to do it. And even after we know this, so like I, I've learned all of this stuff, and it's not something I just learned in the last year or two, but it's something God really has, has sown into me in the last year or two. But I've, I've known this most of my life. That yeah, God, God calls you to be His presence where you are, and, and I've struggled with it. When I was a, a senior in high school, my dad took me to Eritrea, which is a country on the, the northeast coast of Africa along the Red Sea. And so while we were there, the missionary we were working with, he took us down along the Red Sea one day, and we visited this nomadic tribe. I mean, if, if you pictured nomadic tribe desert in Africa, you would have pictured these people. I mean, they lived in tents. They had the camels. It was the whole nine yards, everything you would imagine. So we're driving around, he's, and my dad was asking him, how many Christians are there among this people group? And he tells us, zero. He said, like, well, literally zero, or like there's a few, but not enough to really count. He said, no, literally, there are none. And they started to tell us about these other people groups in that country that were the same way, and and it was when we were flying back, I was praying and just saying, God, you should really send someone to these people to tell them about Jesus. And I felt like he was working in me and saying, why don't you do that? So I said, okay. So, so I went to Bible college and I went to seminary and married my wife. And the whole time we had this thought in mind that we are going to give our lives to reach unreached people groups for Jesus on the other side of the world. And then I graduated seminary. Started praying, started considering where God was calling us, and God called us to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I don't know if you've ever been to Tulsa or not, but if you think Tallahassee is the buckle of the Bible belt, you haven't seen anything. Like, we've got a giant praying hands statue at one of our universities. We've got a, a not, like, Tulsa doesn't have a church on every corner, Tulsa has a mega church on every corner. And so I came to Tulsa as a youth pastor, and I had these, this wonderful group of kids, and they all came from wonderful Christian homes. I mean, honestly, all of their parents were better Christians than I was. And they, many of them went to Christian schools. I literally felt like the most worthless youth pastor in the entire country. And I would teach these kids about, hey, you know, God is doing this, God is saying this. And they'd be like, yeah, my mom's been telling me that for 15 years. What else do you got? <laughs> Nothing. Go to Six Flags. Uh, you know, I just, I didn't have much. And so struggling the whole time and thinking, God, what am I doing? Why am I here? What am I doing? Why am I here? And, and praying these prayers with Angie. And, 
and just really, really struggling through it. And, and after about five or six years, I noticed that all my buddies that I'd went to college and seminary with, they were starting to take missions appointments and they were starting to plant churches in, in difficult areas in the United States. And meanwhile, I was still in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I didn't understand it, and I struggled with it. And every time we had a missionary come through, I was feeling guilty, and I was saying, God, I'll go if you'll let me. And every time, God was telling us to stay. And I I went to a conference, I think it was probably about 2011. And the speaker that day, he just kind of talked from this passage we're looking at this morning. And he said, I don't know who this is for. I mean, there were thousands of pastors there, so I'm I'm sure I wasn't the only one. But he said, I feel like what God is saying to some of you is he wants you to go home and he wants you to plant yourself. He said, he's calling some of you to go back to your communities and stand before your people and tell them, I don't care if you follow Jesus now or in five years, but I'm going to be here when you're ready. My cell phone's going to be the same. My email's going to be the same. This church is going to be the same. You can come here. And, and I sat there and felt the Holy Spirit speaking to me so clearly that this is for you. And the whole time I was thinking, no, it can't be. God, I can't stay in Tulsa. Do you know who I am? Like, I could do some stuff for you. My wife is pretty awesome. We could go to the other side of the world. My kids are tough. We are ready to roll. We'll live where no one else wants to live. We'll do what no one else wants to do. And God said again and again and again, go home, go home, go home, go home. And I was not a man of faith because I said, why, 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 why? Because I knew if I resigned, there'd be a hundred resumes that would come in in a month. But he just kept saying it. And so we went home, and we went through a transition from youth pastor to co-pastor to lead pastor. And, and all along the way, every step of that transition, we're praying, God, just, just open the door and we'll be out of here. And every time he was saying, plant yourself deeper. Plant yourself deeper. And what we've seen over the last two years since that experience is we have started to see a harvest of people coming to the Lord that we would have completely missed out on. We've got, I was telling my dad before service, we've got a, got a couple friends, but, but one stands out especially. He's a, he's a musician in Tulsa, he has a band, he's, he's pretty well known locally, he travels around the country a little bit touring with his band, and he'd grown up out in western Oklahoma, walked away from the church when he graduated high school, and then really hadn't been in church in 20 years, had literally no relationship with the Lord. He had some kids, our kids' age, our they went to school together. His wife did Angie's hair. We met him, and, and his, his wife just started opening up to Angie of, hey, we're in a rough spot. Our marriage is tough. We don't know what to do with our kids. We don't, you and Chris seem happy. What should we do? And this was after Angie had known her for probably five years. And Angie said, well, why don't you come? We're doing this mega sports camp. Just bring your kids to it this summer. It'll be fun. They'll enjoy it. They'll have fun. Just bring them. And so she brought them, and then they came back the next Sunday, and they came back the next Sunday, and they came back the next Sunday, and they started coming every Sunday for about a year and a half. This past February, I got to baptize both of them together. This past week, I got to be there. uh, This past week, I got to be at kids camp when they're little four. And this guy, when he came to church, he said, I'm cool with most of what you guys do, but why do people keep doing this when we sing? It looks like everybody here has a question. I don't know what's going on. And and so we kind of talked about that. But I got to go to kids camp a couple weeks ago, and his little boy was there who just finished fourth grade. And 
I could look over and I could see Max out of the corner of my eye during worship just with hands up and praising the Lord. And then the last night at camp, we're over there and the fourth grade boys, they're just praying together. They're praying for themselves. And his son was filled with the Holy Spirit while he sat over there. It was just, it was wonderful. It was amazing. And we didn't do anything except stay home. There was never a supernatural moment. There was never a sign from heaven that brought this guy back. It was just the steadiness of our relationship with him. And I mean, I could tell you about kids that I was their youth pastor and they went off the deep end and now they're coming back and they're surrendering their lives to the Lord. And it, just last Sunday we had a missionary come speak and one of the kids that was, the, I mean, honestly, the biggest pain in my side when he was in youth. We had this missionary come who's, who's going to Turkey to take the gospel to unreached people groups. And as, as he's leaving, this kid runs over to him. He says, please, just let me pray for you before you go. And I elbowed Angie. I said, did you ever think you would see that? Like, we just wanted him to be in an altar praying. Would you ever have thought he would come down and be a man of God like that? And she has as much faith as I do because she said, not in a million years. But when we go home, God can do powerful and amazing things. But we have to go. There are certain people that only you can reach with your story. Amen. But it means you've got to go and you've got to tell your story. You've got to, God's already at work in their lives and He's waiting for you to come alongside of them and your story is going to put language to what He is doing in their heart. And as you go home, you'll have the ordinary supernatural stories like Angie and I have got to participate in. Mark Batterson is a, uh, an author who's written several books. In one of his books, he says that we often overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what God can do through us in 10 years. And I feel like what God is calling us as a church to in, in this season is, again, as our society becomes more and more transient, as commitment and loyalty become things that just are not highly valued anymore. As God raises up his people and they plant themselves in neighborhoods, in churches, in offices, and in schools, and say, this is where I am and this is where I will stand until God writes it on the wall for me to leave, as we will do that, we will see his kingdom come and his will being accomplished. Amen. So I want to finish. I just want to pray for you this morning. God, we come to you today and we're just we're thankful for our experience of your grace. We're thankful that your kingdom has come and your will is being accomplished in our lives. Lord, I thank you that your ways are always greater than our ways and in your wisdom you see the end from the beginning. So I pray for those this morning who find themselves in a similar experience to what Angie and I have, of just really wrestling with your call to stay when everything in them wants to go. So Lord, I pray for that husband or wife who is considering leaving this morning. Pray today that your spirit would tell them to go home. Pray for that mother or father who's almost done with their children. Ask today that your spirit would tell them to go home. Pray for that employee who's ready to just ready to quit tomorrow, and I pray you would come and tell them to go home, to endure, to be steady, to be faithful and dependable. 
And Lord, I pray for those who are tormented and afflicted. Pray for those who do not have peace. And I ask today that like the man in Mark 5, they would see Jesus and they would run to you. And in you they would find peace. In you they would find hope. In you they would find their deliverance. And they would return to their home to tell of what the Lord has done for them. God, we come to you recognizing that you are in control and we are not. So we lay down our plans, we lay down our preferences, and and we pray simply, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may we participate in it as we go home. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to audio from Christian Heritage Church located in Tallahassee, Florida. Feel free to give copies of this message to others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Christian Heritage Church, please visit us online at chctoday.com.